The title of this message is um, Jesus Ruins the Celebration, right? Um, and I don't want it to be a sad sermon because I won't be asked back. So, <laughs> but I, I do want to draw our attention to this reality. Um, sometimes we could be celebrating ideas, even though when we look around, those ideas are being eroded. And so there might be a reason to mourn as we celebrate. But it also is a call to action. How do we sustain the blessing that God has given this nation? Um, there's only one nation that God has had a covenant relationship with, and that's Israel. Um, but if you look at the course of history, there is something unique about America. Um, one, I believe it was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. America is one of the few nations that actually said, God be our God. And I believe God is willing to accept that and to have a relationship with the people, but also to form systems and structures that reflect his holiness and his goodness. And when you read the writings of the founders, that's exactly what America was. So although God doesn't have a covenant relationship with America, I believe there is a close relationship because of the presence of the church. Um, but if you look at where America is right now, um, that very thing is being taken away. Um, so as we celebrate, we might want to think about how many more celebrations we actually have. Right? How many more celebrations do we actually have? Will our grandchildren be able to celebrate like we are? Um, but so to, to look at this, I want to look at first Israel and God's relationship with Israel. Um, the, 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 the verse that I'm going to be looking at is found in Mark 11, verses 1 through 20. Now, we all know this very familiar verse is Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem uh, on the back of a donkey. And then there's a few things that happen, events that happen in close connection to it that I want to draw our attention to. And basically what you'll see while people are celebrating, Jesus isn't. And the question I would ask is if he was to come to our celebration in our nation, how excited would he be given what he knows is going on? All right. So before we, we look at that, look at Israel's very impressive history. United States have a very impressive history, but Israel has one also. In Genesis 12, uh, 1, this is what it reads, 1 through uh, 3. It says this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And I love that last part there. All the families of the earth will be blessed. Do you know God wants to bless all the families and the nations of the earth? I mean, this is in Genesis. This is not just a New Testament theology. This was always God's vision. And his call to Abraham is on the uh, backdrop of the table of nations. So he names all the nations. And then he says, I'm going to pluck you out so that you will be a blessing to all the nations. God wants to bless this nation. And he wants to bless all nations. How he does it is very interesting. But let's look at the impressive history of Israel. Not only did they have the call of Abraham, which for us, Abraham is the father of our faith. 
for the Jewish people, he is literally their ethnic and genealogical father. For the Muslims, for many of them, actually, they are descendant from Ishmael. Um, and so the three great religions, the three great monotheistic religion, look back to this man and say, he was blessed of God. But if you go through the history of Israel, you have the story of the, the dividing of the Red Sea, right? America has these great stories of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, all these amazing things, the Magna Carta, all these great things in our history that we look back to and say, this gives us meaning, Israel more so. Dividing of the Red Sea. I don't know if God did that for any other nation as he took them out of Egypt. Uh, receiving the law at Sinai. I mean, he could have done it naturalistically where this, the people started coming up with their laws and putting it together, but he did it in a, in a miraculous fashion. Um, so the, Israel knows their uniqueness in, the, in this world. Manna from heaven. Wouldn't it be great if he did that for us? Right? And what I read, manna was low-calorie, low-sugar, <laughs> fat-free, <laughs> right? That's what I want, right? And it tastes great. Yeah. If you read the, uh, the book of Judges, God was using Israel to defeat his enemies. And every time they honored in him and he was with them, they defeated their enemies. And part of America's great story is, hey, man, when we go to war, we win. Right? And, and, and in many ways, we, we always acknowledge that God was with us. Right? Um, David, I mean, it was Israel's David that de defeated Goliath. And even to this day, the story of David and Goliath is told throughout the world. Look at this wonderful relationship God has with a nation. David as king. Solomon's kingdom was one of the most powerful, wealthiest kingdom in the history of the world the building of the temple and the building of the second temple and the building of Herod's temple. And today, right now in the Middle East, they're ready to build another temple. Samson's, uh, you know, the most strongest man in the world, Samson. I thought it was Hulk Hogan growing up. Then I got saved <laughs> and I read there was a greater than Hulk Hogan, right? Um, Daniel uh, and his prophecies and all that. So when you look at Israel's history and, and God's connection with Israel, it's, one, it's a glorious one. Something worth celebrating, isn't it? They have a calling, they have a purpose, they have a law, they have a, a land, they have a nation. Um, but yet when Jesus interacts, now Jesus is the same Yahweh that calls Abraham. And makes this promise. He's the same Yahweh that was with David. And the same Yahweh that empowered Samson. And now he's in the flesh. In the same nation that he started. What did it say? He came to his own, but his own received them not. They didn't recognize him. So look what happens. Now this is, seems like a, a celebration. Seems like they know what's going on. Mark 11, 1 through 20. In verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem in Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to, to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said, said to them what Jesus said. 
and they let him go. Now, just a little background. This, is, this sets something up, right? So in the book of Zechariah, there was a promise that the Messiah will enter Jerusalem on the back of a colt. Throughout the book of Isaiah and the prophets, they have this vision of Yahweh going to the temple. Now, they didn't know how because they knew Yahweh was spirit, but they said he will go to his temple, which at that point, the temple had the Shekinah glory in it. So they didn't say that Yahweh will be coming forth from his temple. They said he will be going to his temple, right? So you have the Shekinah glory and you have some entity going to the temple, it's all coming together right now. And you would think God coming to his people in this fashion will be one for the greatest celebration. But let's see what happens. First of all, you'll see here uh, the people respond with impressive praise and worship. It says, verse 7, And they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Remember, um, when I was growing up, my grandmother took me to church um, a few times a year. One of those was, uh, uh, what's this called? Um, Palm Sunday, the palms, right? And, you know, play with it and all that. But just imagine this vision. You see Jesus entering Jerusalem. If you're a disciple of Jesus, there's a sense like, man, this is coming together. In fact, the Bible says on his way in, uh, Andrew and his brother, John, were arguing over who's going to sit on his right and his left. They just knew he was going to be coronate, coronated as king. And so there's this sense of worship, of praise, of excitement, of celebration. It goes on. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they understood enough of scripture to say he's the one that's coming in the name of the Lord. Imagine the branches. Imagine the crowd. Imagine Jesus on the back of this donkey coming in and the praise and the shouts. What a celebration. But look at this, verse 10. And they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They are celebrating. They have a, a biblical understanding, an eschatological understanding that this is it. The kingdom is here and he is the king. Well, look at verse 11. How would you respond to all this? You're coming in Jerusalem in the back of a coat, which he does to let them know, hey, Messiah is coming. There's the praise, the branches, there's the screaming Hosanna, there's a quoting of scripture, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It seems like Jesus has the opportunity to give his most impressive sermon ever. I would imagine, okay, okay, let me share this. You heard the Sermon on the Mount. I got a better one today. Sermon on the cult. Listen up, All right? But look at his response. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Talk about anticlimactic. Where's the partying? Where's the celebration? Why are you not impressed? Why aren't you using this to, to rile people up and let them know what's going on? He, he sees all this and he doesn't seem impressed at all. But of all places, he goes into the temple and he would know it's late. 
He looks around, then he just leaves. That's always bothered me. I was like, well, why would Mark put that there? It seems like it's just, just words. Did Mark have a quota? He has to have as much words as, you know. But think about it. What does that add to the text to say Jesus went into, Jeru- uh, into the temple, looked around, and left? I'm sh- I know it's there for a reason. Right? Look at verse 12. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Here's some other verses I think Mark could have done without. How many of you like when people know you're hungry? Right? Especially if not your family. Now, listen, have you ever been in a class, quiet, professors teaching, and your stomach growls? Right? And you say, Satan, get behind me. (laughs) No one wants it. But why is Mark telling us these things? That Jesus goes into the temple, looks around, but, oh, man, it's late. I got to leave. And starts off verse 12. He was hungry. There must be a purpose in all this, especially how anticlimactic it is coming off of this great entrance into Jerusalem. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, do you have the same issues I'm having with this passage? This is uncharacteristic behavior of Jesus. But I believe every word is in Scripture for a reason. What did this poor tree do to Jesus? Now, I'm not a tree hugger all the time, right? But this tree, I feel bad for. Jesus is hungry. He sees the tree from a distance. It's green. It's looking like it has fruit. He goes, looks around, checks it out, gets close enough to see what's really there, and finds that there's nothing to it. There's nothing there. And in response, he says, you're done. If you think that was uncharacteristic, look at the next verse. And they came to Jerusalem. Verse, this is verse 15. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who brought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, listen. You know, a lot of the movies, they make Jesus look a little soft, right? Because they want, you know, Hollywood. He was a carpenter, a stonemason. He was strong, right? Um, and he went into that temple, and he turned things over. It didn't even say the disciples helped. They probably was as afraid of it as anyone else. Because Peter's like, yo, all the foolishness I've been saying up to this time, he could beat me up, right? <laughs> I better be careful. And he's turning tables over, and he's yelling, he's angry, and I think, one of the, I think in John it says that he makes a cord, a whip, and starts to whip everyone. Now, I've to, I was told that Jesus is meek and mild. The, the last few paragraphs is very uncharacteristic. What happened that Jesus would start responding this way? In the midst of their worship, in the midst of their praise, He goes off. 
Look at what he says. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You will be a blessing to who? All the families of the world. Didn't I tell you what your purpose was? I set you up to be a blessing to the nations. He goes on, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when, every, and when evening came, they went out to see. Now let me just bring this back. So I'm looking at, wait, I get it. When the people were worshiping, that's external. When they were like, oh, praise you, Hosanna, you're the king. External stuff, right? Anyone could do it. Anyone could come to church, sing the hymns. Anyone could clap when the pastor preaches. But what happens when we get to the heart of the matter? Let's get to your heart. Well, the heart of Israel was the temple. I wonder what's the heart of America. I'm going to read some things later that tells you the heart of America is the church. At least that's what the founders expected. But what happens when Jesus goes into the temple, he looks around, he sees something. And that's when he says, okay, I'm going to have to do something about it. Think about it. He goes to the temple, looks around, then leaves. A few days later, he's turning things over. He didn't like what he saw when he got close. Well, that's the same thing that happened with the fig tree, right? It was like almost an object lesson. It was basically... Israel is the fig tree, isn't it? And from a distance, when you look at it from a distance, it looked like they were doing the right thing. The religion looked good. It looked powerful. It looked holy. The people seemed like they understood Scripture when they were praising him as he was entering Jerusalem. But when he got close enough to see what was really going on, it was very unimpressive. Here's what was happening. The leaders were not promoting the holiness of God. They were promoting the price of lambs. They were not promoting the ugliness of sin, but the price of forgiveness. They were not promoting the love of God for all, but the love of God for Israel. And they were not promoting the eminence of God, that he is there if you would just call out to him. They were promoting the high priest. You need to go through them. That's why he said it was supposed to be a a house of prayer for all nations. Interestingly, where they set up the the, uh, money changing and all that was in the court of the Gentiles. All right, so that's where the Gentiles could come and get a glimpse of the holiness of Yahweh. And they made it a marketplace. On top of that, the person who owned all the, 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 the business for selling the lambs was the high priest. It was his family that was providing the lambs for sale. And they're saying, there, there's a, uh, some history that says, if you bought a, a lamb outside of the temple, they would come, when you brought it in, they would find every reason why it was blemished. And said, well, you need one of ours. And a poor person like me would ask, where's the great value lamb? Because I can't from, buy the expensive ones. 
Israel had a promise. Israel had a purpose. But when God came and looked at it, he saw that they had failed. Now, interestingly, where the court was of the Gentiles, why I think it was so important to what God was doing, because in a few days that whole curtain would be torn where the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, and now what it, it, the symbolism, because remember, God was setting up this symbol for a long time. The Gentiles are permitted here until that day when God comes out of the temple to them. That's the whole idea. When he died on the cross and his shed blood was the forgiveness of sins, when that curtain tore, symbolically, it's God is no longer separated from us. And they said, no, we're going to stand in the way of that. I want to read some quotes from some of the early founders of the United States. Because I want to look at the parallel here. Israel had a purpose to be a blessing to the nation. They stood in that purpose. They couldn't stop it because Jesus would die for the sins of the world. And then he told the same disciples, now you go into the world. But let me draw a quick connection. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved the world. But then the son sends his, his disciples to the world. Part of God loving the world is the church going and making disciples. That's what loving the world looks like. When he told Abraham, you will be a blessing to the families of the earth, it was through the son that will be sent and the church that the son will send. That's the connection. Now, what happens in history when people actually apply that? Just reading a few. This, what, how much time? 11, 10. I think I can get through this. Here's some quotes. Referring to the Bible, that book, sir, is the rock upon which our republic rests. Andrew Jackson. It is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. George Washington. It is impossible to mentally or socially enslave a Bible-reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. Horace Greeley. The highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government with the principles of Christianity. John Quincy Adams. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all of our political institution, institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God, James Madison. He who shall introduce into public affairs the principles of Christianity will change the face of the world, Benjamin Franklin. Whatever makes men good Christians makes them good citizens, Daniel Webster. God who gave us life gave us liberty. Can the liberties of a nation be secure when we have removed the convictions that these liberties are a gift of God? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever, Thomas Jefferson. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in the room for divine protection. 
Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of, of a superintending providence in our favor. Have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writing that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. Therefore, I beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and his blessing on our deliberations be held in the assembly every morning. Benjamin Franklin. I'm almost done. The general principles on which the founding fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young men could unite. And what were these general principles? I answer, the general principles of Christianity, in which all those sects were united, and the general principles of English and American liberty, John Adams. And you do well, well to wish to learn our arts and way of life, and above all, the religion of Jesus Christ. These will make you a greater and happier people than you are, George Washington. Last one. Revelation assures us that righteousness exalteth a nation, and the public liberty will not long survive the total extinction of morals. Samuel Adams. Now, that's worth celebrating. But if Christ came to our celebration, would he celebrate with us? Or would he look and see what's happening throughout this nation and say, it is not long before this great nation falls? I believe Jesus had a purpose for America. I believe he has a purpose for every nation like he has a purpose for every person. In fact, in the Old Testament, God's vision is that the whole earth is filled with the glory of Jesus, like the waters covers the face of the earth. And how does that happen? It happens in nations. But here's the important thing. The founders knew that if this experiment called the United States of America will work, you need a Christian citizenry. So as we bemoan the changes that's happening, as we look at some of the laws that are being passed, as we look at the political instability, um, we have to ask ourselves, what can change that? Interestingly, evangelism, discipleship, going right back to what Jesus says. Go make disciples and you will truly make a nation. So as we celebrate, we have to ask ourselves, how much is this the church has been involved in? Are we really making disciples? If we are afraid of America not being here for our kids, we better make sure our kids are Christian. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you that I can come to this country. Lord, I was lost in so many ways. I would have been dead had I stayed in my country. But you blessed me, so I would never denigrate this great nation. 
But sometimes an outsider sees things that some people can't see from the inside. And the very freedoms, the very liberties, the very power of this nation, the promises are slipping out of the hands of those who claim it most. But interestingly, it's, it won't be won by political battles. I mean, we keep going back and forth between political parties, and yet it's still slipping away. It won't be won by wealth. The nation is wealthier than it's ever been, and still is slipping away. It won't be won by military power. What nation can withstand the military of the United States? Yet, we see these freedoms slipping away. It can only be won by going forth and making disciples of this nation. So help your church, as much as we complain about where the country is going, to recognize if you came into our temples, which is our churches, you might throw a few things also, because we're not doing what we're supposed to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.